in the past as a leader, you were deemed to have to be perfect. You were deemed that if somebody had asked you a question, you were supposed to have the answer to that question. I think that today we like our leaders to be a little bit more failing. We like our later leaders to have the ability to actually fail on, you know, at the same point and then jointly help you figure it out. Hey everybody, welcome to Zero to One, a show where we talk sales culture with the leading minds in the industry. My guest today is Jacko, founder and CEO of Winning by Design. Hello and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. How are you? I'm great and it's a pleasure having you. Uh, I've been looking forward to this discussion. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. You're most welcome. Um, so I want to dive right in and ask you, uh, given that you and your team at Winning by Design help your customers design, build, and scale their sales effort, uh, I'm assuming that you must have encountered many different sales cultures. Uh, and I was wondering if you'd noticed any common attributes that you're seeing in winning sales cultures today. I think that, you know, like, not necessarily, that they're, you know, like, they're hard to dissect. I think that what is the common sales culture, what seems to be wrong is that we always seem to be thinking that the alpha culture is the only culture. Uh, the extrovert, the talker, uh, the, the job owner, as they call that, you know, you know like, no. And, and I believe that is not the case. I believe that any person can be, most people can be a sales professional if they choose to do so. And whether you're an introvert, an extrovert, doesn't really matter. Okay. Uh, and, and, and so I'm paraphrasing you on this, uh, but this, there was this great quote that, that you gave away in one of your videos, which was, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, and that's our starting point as well with this show is that we believe sales culture can really make or break your success as an organization. Uh, what's your take on that? It's not my quote. That is an, it is a renowned quote uh, from someone else. But, you know, like uh, uh, what the quote means, you know, like if you look at culture, what does it really mean? Culture is something that you'll be doing when nobody else is watching. You know, as a runner, um, you know, you train yourself, you know, like and as a competitive runner, you train yourself. And often that includes uh, hills, runs in the hills. And you can obviously can take shortcuts. You can start walking halfway. You can do whatever you want. You're all by yourself. But it is during those moments that you develop, you know, like the, the fortitude in order to train properly, to take the long road, to take the steeper run, to not stop, to not give up. That is part of a culture, but it is vis it's not visible to the eye that, that is watching you during the race. It is what happens when, you know, years and months before the race ever occurred, before the cameras and the, and, and the spotlight, the quota, and the numbers are on you. That's when culture gets cultivated. And so as a, as a sales leader, what does it take to set that kind of winning culture in your team and make sure that they are having that right behavior, even if you're not watching? Yeah. What we see is that uh, the leadership in generally needs to lead by example, as it is almost in every role. These are no like secret, you know, like tricks or anything, but the lead by example is important. I think that there is an, a change in that leading by example, where in the past as a leader, you were deemed to have to be perfect. You were deemed that if somebody had asked you a question, you were supposed to have the answer to that question. I think that today we like our leaders to be a little bit more failing. We like our later leaders to have the ability to actually fail on, you know, at the same point and then jointly help you figure it out. The leaders are less supposed to know it 
am more supposed to dare to coach you to help you to figure out how, how to do it. And so does that mean that as a sales leader, you're also co-owning, if you will, uh, parts of the job with your team and it's seen more as a, a kind of partnership that you're building with each of the members of that team? Yes, it depends a little bit. I think that we get a, a variety of leaders, forms of leadership. I think that what we need to diver- differentiate is the word manager. I think to many younger generations, the word manager uh, is a dirty word, like training and manager. Like these are words that they do not really like. It's like things that happen in a bubble somewhere, but that they don't really approve of. If you think about manager, for example, um, today's managers are both supposed to help you get to do the job better and at the same time approve your uh, salary increase as well as your promotion. We believe that those parts of the job that relates to direct HR management skills will be relegated to HR. Um, HR will be doing 360s, uh, you know, like uh, on, on their employees. And of sh- for sure, they will ask the coach um, uh, for their input. What, I, what we do see is that as a sales leader, you know, like there's a, diff- a variety of sales leaderships what you would refer to as the manager will become the coach. And that coach is there to help you succeed. Understood. Uh, so, so that's an interesting dis- distinction you're making there between manager and coach. Do you think that that's a terminology that you're, you're seeing actually put in, in job titles or is it just a, a kind of mindset? I think it's, you'll find it in job titles all across in sports, to which in many cases sales find its analogy. Uh, and then, you know, like you, have, you have the manager of the team and you have the coach. And the manager manages all the financials of the team, the attendance and so on and so forth, whereas the coach is primarily on the coaching skills. So we're going to see, continue to see that in sales as well. Um, obviously, you know, like it cannot be soon enough as we believe that this is one of the areas where things most commonly go wrong today. And uh, an, another important part of that role as coach, of course, and uh, I think you, you talk a lot on this subject, is uh, designing processes. Uh, actually, I think there was uh, one of your bits of advice is to start with the process. Um, why is that so important for sales leaders to do that, that step initially? So, uh, you know, like, have you done any sport in the past that you feel like that you, that you felt that you could compete at, at some, you know, at certain, not obviously at, at world-class level, but at some level? Uh, yeah, I've had my sporting days. They're behind me now, but, um, but yeah, I, I used to do some. And what, were the, what was the sport that you, uh, that you enjoyed? Uh, so, uh, football or what uh, Americans would call soccer, uh, oh. I think would be the one. So let's play football. Now, if you learn how to play football on the street, right? It's free flow, right? Yeah. But then you go to a club. And what do you have to do at the club when you start to play in a club? Uh, I guess you would start with uh, like physical training, uh, collective exercises, uh, game plans uh, based on certain types of situation that might arise at at different stages in, in a game. And they are all process. All those things are process. The process of training, the process of gameplay, the process even of like uh, resting, and the process of eating if you become a pro athlete. Everything has a process associated with that. There are all reasons for doing that. And the reason is because you want to optimize your skill set. 
Now, what we find in sills is that most people just keep kicking the ball against the wall and trying to keep the ball up high on their knees and so on and so forth. And they think that that is selling. And it, it, necessar- it not necessarily is on a professional level. On a professional level, you are there to show up like five days a week, seven hours a day at least, in order to provide score goals, if I may use that analogy and extending that a little bit there, but to score goals. And in order to do that, you got to have process. You can no longer just wake up one day and start kicking against the wall and go back home at the end of the day. And so it does all start with process. Process doesn't have to be complicated. I'm not saying that it's got to be, you know, like over the top. Um, I'm already very happy with a three-step process or a five-step process. All that is very good. But what you can do with that is you can learn where do you excel at, where are you weak and do you need to improve at, at, and what is a priority and not a priority. Another thing that you've uh, discussed as well is, and and that falls under this this category of how do we build processes that work, uh, is the pod structure. Uh, And so so my question is, well, first off, just from a, a purely organizational point of view, perhaps it's worth mentioning some of the advantages that that pod structure has versus uh, classic structure, which has your AEs in one part of the org, uh, your CSMs in another, BDRs, SDRs, uh, kind of by all, all uh, put in by, by role. Historically, the reason why we designed organizations was to put them up against each other. Your competitor was not your, your, your competing company with a competing product. It essentially was your peer. You can see this, for example, in the historic movies on sales, that everybody competes with each other. They called it an individual contributor, something that we still call an individual quota. They're individualized. However, if we see what makes actually a salesperson work, it can no longer be an individual quote, a performer. The individual performer came from, let's say, the shoe salesman or the encyclopedia salesman or the vacuum cleaner sales professionals who went on the street on a Sunday night, were gone for four to five days and came home with purchase orders that needed to be built. They were truly individual warriors, so to speak, individual sales professionals that went into the field and stuck their feet in, in between the doors to sell them some stuff. And I don't want to disrespect that job, actually, because I think there's some extremely admirable sales professional skills that were used in those days that helped people. But those were individual contributors. Today, we no longer have that. Today, they're part of a marketing, a sales, a customer success organization, and they need to operate as a team. Today, there is no longer room for one person being singled out for an individual performance uh, where, where the entire team contributed to. What we see, if we would continue to do that, we would, you know, like in a form of a SaaS sales, we would tear those pieces apart. In SaaS sales, we see it's a high-velocity machine. It's very dependent on a system. How many leads are provided to you? How many deals do you hand off to your onboarder? Do you have a sales engineer involved or solution architect? What is your CSM? You're part of a team. Grouping those members of the team that have a similar kind of goal, whether it is in a vertical market, a region, uh, a particular uh, vertical expertise, such as SMB, where you group them in, we call that a pod. It is a group of humans that are working together as a team to accomplish a goal, goal, uh, the same goal, the same way that a, a soccer team or a football team accomplishes their goal. They operate as a team. If you start in this team, Uh, If you create multiple of those pods, you create revenue stability. Rather than a single engine, a single um, 
cylinder engine, we now create multiple paths that create a multiple cylinder engine, allowing the engine to start running smoother and to become less dependent on the rise and fall of a single path. Understood. Um, and so to take that a little bit further, um, so you, you were mentioning about the kind of inherently competitive nature of sales roles. Uh, and I think that's something that's still reflected today in compensation. Uh, perhaps that's where it's most strongly uh, represented is uh, you have an individual quota. If that quota is met, you have an individual uh, compensation that's structured around how much of that quota you fulfilled. Um, if, you, if you're thinking about your org as a set of pods, does it then make sense to align compensation with that structure that you're putting in place? Do you think of that quota as a, think of that quota as a monthly quota or quarterly, right? Because most quotas are either monthly or quarterly. And think of you every, every month, every quarter that you have to play, you, you win, you know, like 10 games out of your 12 games. And if you win nine, you're going to be fired or you're going to have to be retrained. And so every cycle, you would only get three months of play and then you get some training, three months of play and then you get some training. It would be very odd to see which teams perform because the teams that perform have to in generally only survive because they have superstars on the team. That's the only team that in a world like that can survive, the team of superstars. There's not enough superstars for all companies to become successful. However, as we've seen in sports, there is commonly, and in soccer, there's a number of clubs. My home club, Ajax, is one of those examples where the system is more important than the individual performer. And those companies who pursue the system and the process are able to consistently perform, maybe not every year, but every three to four years or something like that. You know, Manchester United, Bayern Munich, Barcelona, Real Madrid, they're all teams that have persistently performed because of the system they implemented over time. In this system, it is the system which is ultimately, or the process, that is the, the, the superstar that allows us to make everybody in that who comes in give an equal chance to succeed. You can also see sometimes in these systems, it is the superstar that can actually disrupt it. It is a superstar culture that can disrupt it. And it's not uncommon that you see those heroes, you know, like they become very vocal and they, you know, they demand more the ball more, they demand to score more goals. Yet when you pull them out, the team actually keeps performing very well. Ideally, you know, like you have a Ronaldo or of some sorts um, who are actually superstars who can perform in the system. That is the ideal scenario. Gotcha. Um, and what, so what's interesting as well with the, with the pod view is that you're actually creating a, a holistic view of your sales cycle. Uh, which in SaaS doesn't end with uh, closing a contract. Um, and so I'm curious about, yeah, wh whether that's something that sales teams today should be looking more into is looking at the whole um, life cycle of the customer and optimizing that entire journey uh, to ensure better revenue. Okay, let me ask you, because I didn't answer your previous questions correctly, because your previous question addressed the culture of, of compensation. What I find in that culture of compensation, if we provide a single person with a lion's share of the, of the gains and the benefits, we are actually disrupting the team more than we can think of. And today's culture is even more so than ever before. 
Um, if I would give you a stack of money and say like, you know, like this is the amount of uh, wealth that you've created for the company, I'm going to share this with you, although it was part of your team effort, you will not take a picture of it. If you go back 10, 20 years you know, ago, sales professionals showed their wealth with watches and cars and everything. It was, it was quite a, the, the suits. Everything displayed how successful they were. That was an indication of how good they were. And we accepted that. Today, that would be considered a faux pas. We would not like it when they do that. We would not like it when people openly uh, demonstrate you know, like how much money and wealth they have. It goes against the culture of the, of the modern human being. It indicates that, you know, like at first glance, that compensation needs to change. The second part of compensation that needs to be understood is it is there to drive behavior. If you every day in, day out, run the same, walk the same route or run the same route, and I want to deviate that, I may offer you a free cup of coffee in the street over so that you take a turn, get a free cup of coffee and walk a different route. Now, the nature of that is to change your behavior. And the nature of that second and second part is that, that I do it with an immediate gratification. If you take the action, you receive gratification. If you look at customers, uh, if you look at companies with sales cycles as long as six, nine to 18 months, then I do not know what we compensate them on, these people, on, uh, on any other thing than helping them make more money. Most people, when they come join you for the money, they, that's exactly what they say when they leave you. They leave you because somebody offered more money. And thus, the culture that we have set forth, a culture where we say, hey, you know, as a single person, you can make the most amount of money if you win more, becomes exactly that, a culture where people work for the money. In SaaS, that won't work because the amount of deals that you need to close every month simply could not be delivered by a single or a handful of sales professionals applying the Pareto principle of 20% of the people generating 80% of the revenue. Very clear. And, um, and especially I, I imagine because there's that handover that happens where uh, that deal is then passed along to uh, later stages in the funnel, like onboarding, success, uh, retention, and, and those are the ones where you're going to be unlocking additional growth, uh, I think was one of the, the key points of your SaaS sales methodology. That's correct. I think that we need to understand that, you know, like most of the profit from a client and profit sometimes feels like an ugly word. It shouldn't be. Most of the profit of the client that pays for the salaries of all the people in the company in G&A and engineering and product management and so on, those salaries need to be paid for by the profit that gets made in subsequent years. And those the profit in the subsequent years is secured by the unheralded uh, player in this in, in entire equation called the customer success manager. And so we believe that the customer success manager is an equal part of the entire success factor that the, that the business constitutes and not just a sales professional. I'm not saying the sales profession is less needed. I'm just saying everybody plays an equal role the same way that the striker and a midfielder and a defender have an equal role to play on a successful soccer team. And so uh, what we're actually seeing a lot in teams today is this new job title called chief revenue officer, which uh, a lot of times will uh, encompass sales and success. What's your take on that? Because is that an adequate reflection of uh, the methodology that you kind of advocate? It will be similar to calling a coach 
a chief goal scoring officer. A chief revenue officer points out as if revenue is the most important. Revenue is the byproduct of customer success. And so I believe that, you know, like uh, it is still a signal to the world of an alpha dominated uh, role where revenue is the almighty. Revenue is not the almighty, it is profit that is, you know, like if you want to look at the company's, uh, uh, you know, like business, it is profit that in generally rules. Um, and so chief revenue officer is primarily a title to re-indicate, to put an alpha on top of the VP of sales role and make sure that the head of customer success does not take over that responsibility, in my opinion. Um, would we call a chief customer success officer and we would have sales reporting to that, then clearly the head of CS would be in a more prominent role. So chief revenue officer is simply an indication to pull customer success once again back under the VP of sales position um, and, and uh, you know, like use revenue as a common denominator. Right, but okay, perhaps beyond the, po the politics of it, there is this, this desire to make those two teams work more closely together uh, and, and uh, you know, work hand in hand at creating these kinds of moments in the customer journey that are going to be impactful uh, and that are going to mean that that customer has an, an homogenous and successful experience from uh, awareness all the way through to uh, upsell, cross-sell, or, or renewal. Yeah, it's a similar kind of role, and I'd be very provocative down here. It's similar to assigning a dictator to a country and saying, well, because we have a dictator, all individual departments of the, the, of the government will now operate better. Yeah, under a dictatorship, that is indeed the nature of, of how it works. However, if we really want to make an organization successful, they need to be based on consensus, people who want to work together. In, in some cases, an aspire, you know, a really inspiring uh, a chief revenue officer may do that. But in most cases, and I'm talking about seven out of 10, eight out of 10 situations, the chief revenue officer is nothing more but an alpha who just wants to make sure that the customer success organization falls in line. It is as if the, 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 the Q&A department from the engineering group has to report once again into the engineering department to make sure that the engineers are not caught in writing uh, failing code. These organizations, customer success and sales, like marketing and sales, should be able to coexist without an overarching role. And the concepts of how they are based on working together should not be based on a hierarchical uh, perspective, but should be based on a customer-centric perspective, which is everybody is trying to help the customer to become successful. And so what, what does that look like, um, perhaps not organizationally, but in, in the day-to-day -day for those teams? Does it mean setting different objectives for uh, different, like, common objectives between those teams? Um, what are some tips to get started on, on doing that? What the nature of a pod is, is that no longer uh, we are looking at the hierarchy as the sole way of, of managing people, but also the pod. In the pod, we're grouping people from a variety of disciplines together and they work together, not because their bosses are telling them to individually. It's, you know, if putting the prospector and, and the, the sales professional and the onboarder all together in a pod, they start working together to help the customer to, be, to, to get onboarded and, and get a, obtain a live client, not because their boss is telling them, you're going to get paid uh, you know, like $5,000 every quarter if you bring on 20 deals. That is an individual quota. 
we need to balance that in the pot with a team goal. How many clients are we able to bring on successfully over the period of a month or three months? Right. So it's, it's a collaborative process more than it is a kind of top down. Uh, this is how it's going to work. We've got one head here and, and we're deciding everything that way. Kind of function. That is right. Okay. What we are looking for is the difference from a team culture to a community culture. In a team culture, like a soccer team, individual people get paid individually to perform. Now, I compare a team with that of eating together. And if you see in many companies, they have like farmer tables where everybody's sitting and having lunch together, something that in many countries like the Netherlands, we already had that at Philips for, for decades. That was already a common thing to all come and sit together. Now, what we find is that this is a culture of a team culture. We eat together. However, if we create a community culture, we're no longer just eating together, but we're sharing food. Each of us may bring food from our own culture into the office and share it with each other. What we find is a way stronger culture than a team culture. A team culture is a, it obviously you know, has shown its merit, but a community culture goes way beyond that. It is no longer where people are helping each other because they have to, but it's where people are helping because they want to. In a team culture, it is often the stronger people who help the weaker people to get better. But in a community culture, everybody helps everybody, whatever skill, knowledge, whatever you have. You can see this, whether you build houses or a village, everybody contributes a little bit. Those community cultures are the new cultures for sales, customer facing, and over the next five years, you're gonna see those develop. If, for example, I give, you know, like I recently ran into a team, they were a little bit behind quota, and you know, they decided, they became a community together, and they decided, hey, let's go after this together as a group. It was not initiated by any boss or anything. And if we do it, if we are successful, we're gonna paint our hair white. Now, as the story, and as you may see some of the videos online, this particular team ended up at a barber shop, all their beards and hair, and you know, everybody was painting their hair white. Why? Because they were in it together. Now, would it have made any difference if I would pay them a $5,000 bonus? Would they have be any more or less successful? No, it wouldn't have made a difference. The moment in time that they grouped together and they say, we're going to do this together, it was not a financially motivated decision. It was a community-motivated decision. This is the difference between a team who gets paid and a group of people who decide to work together and lock elbows with each other and try to do it for each other. That's the difference between a team and a culture. And I call this difference between having dinner together or sharing food together. That's a powerful story, Jacko. Thank you so much. Uh, I had one final question. Um, there's a lot of sales uh, resources available for salespeople who are looking to improve their skills, better their career. Obviously, Winning by Design's YouTube channel is a great one. Uh, if you don't know about it, you should go check it out. That's on YouTube. That's Winning by Design. Um, and uh, I, I guess my question is, if there's one piece of advice that gets shared a lot to salespeople today uh, that you think is really misguided, what would, what would that advice be? Um. There's so much, um, you know, like I, first and foremost, I'll give you the advice that is right. 
not whether it's wrong or whatever advice other people are giving is right or wrong. I believe in the following. People hate to be sold. They hate it with a passion unknown to humankind. This is how much people hate to be sold. You, you, you ask any audience and you say, how many of you uh, hate being sold? You know, literally everybody, you know, raises their hand. And, you know, like probably one out of a hundred says like, no, I love being sold. That's my brother, by the way. Um, the other 999 or 99 out of 100 uh, hate, hate being sold. But if I then ask, how many of you would like to buy something? Now, literally, it is almost 100 out of 100 who love to buy. For me, the best and easiest advice to, to a newborn sales professional that will be by every superstar I ever sold uh, along, uh, if I think of Chris uh, Chris Powers uh, nowadays at Marketo. If I, I think of the, the the folks at Harmonic who I've worked with and I admired as a salesperson, John Skaggs comes to mind. Uh, if I think of all those sales professionals, they all have one thing in common: stop selling your customers and start helping them to buy by simply changing the process of not one that is focused at sales but focused at helping your customers to buy. It simply changes the outcome of it. The results that we are getting, which is hitting quota, which ends up making more money, are exactly that. They're the results of those fruits, of those seeds that you put in there. And those seeds are always help your customer to buy the right solution for their problem. Amazing. Jacko, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing those insights with us today. That was amazing. Thank you very much. Now, one question for you, Jonathan, before we go. What's the key takeaway other than the last one? I don't want it to be the last one. What is the key takeaway that you picked up from this? I would say uh, a shift in mindset from manager to coach. Uh, I thought it was a really powerful one. And uh, thinking of uh, not necessarily implementing, um, putting sales and success together through organizational methods, but more thinking about Right. These are people who have a common interest to be working together on these goals. And how do we get them to think that way uh, and not have a dictator in place? Um, yeah. Methodology uh, is the key to that. Methodology is what you pick. Process is how you implement it. And coaching is how you uh, execute against it. Jacko, thank you so much. Uh, and thanks to our listeners for supporting the show. For more episodes of Zero to One, you can head over to bonjour.io slash show. Remember to like, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Until next time, see you. See you. Bye-bye.